Well, good morning. And if you would join me in John chapter 11, I'd like to begin our worship time around God's Word by reading His Word. And you can follow along in your scriptures with me. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38, I will read down through verse 46. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this point, this place in our worship service, now we listen to you. Now we hear the words of our Savior speaking to his church. Now we hear the voice of heaven speak. And I pray that you would allow by your spirit that I would be careful with these words. But I pray also for this church and those that are listening, even online, that the words of our God would sink deeply into our hearts and minds. And Father, that we would pay attention, that our hearts would be stirred, Our minds would be activated by your majesty and your glory. We heard from the Psalms that we, as your people, are to ascribe to our God the glory that is due your name. That as we gather this morning, we are to gather in holy array, fully covered by the righteousness of our Savior and our God. And I pray that you would allow that the thoughts and meditations of our hearts and minds would also be arrayed in your holiness so that everything in your tabernacle would cry out glory. Father, I pray for this hour of worship that not only you would be glorified, but also that you would be glorified in your people, your church. Do then the work that only your spirit can do and sanctify us making us more like the glory of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it had been my intention to complete the 11th chapter of John, but there was a delay a couple of weeks ago with my preaching, and therefore we're set off just a little bit. And I'm just warning you in advance that I'm not going to finish John 11 this morning We're going to probably save the end of the chapter for the beginning of the year because for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the gift of God in sending his son. So we are going to finish with verse 46 this morning and save the rest of the chapter for the beginning of January. That being said, last week we examined the conversations that Jesus had both with Martha 
and with Mary, where Jesus not only promised to raise the brother back to life, but he promised as well to raise both body and spirit to life in all those who believe in him. And after their brother Lazarus had been in the grave for four days, we watched Jesus come to Bethany, a place that was grieving and filled with sorrow. The smell of death was there, as we're going to see again this morning. But Jesus came to bring life. And he had promised in the beginning of the chapter that he came to bring the glory of God so that the Son of God would be glorified in what he's going to do here this morning, as we see at the graveside of Lazarus. And he reveals this plan of glory to Martha, who confesses her faith in who Jesus was. And the picture that I hope we saw last week from verses 17 to 37 gives to us Jesus as the life giver, coming to our world of darkness, a darkness that is filled with the sorrow and grief of death, which is the dreadful curse of sin. And the prominent truth in this 11th chapter and in the miracle itself is that Jesus Christ is himself the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him are spiritually raised to eternal life in Christ the moment that they come to faith. And the day will come when the physical body will also be raised by Christ for those who believe. Jesus does not appear to have the same conversation with Mary that he did with Martha. But we do see the heart of Jesus, the compassion of Christ, the empathy of Christ exposed as his heart is troubled by the scene around the tomb of Lazarus and what's taking place with the people. We find Jesus weeping. And we left off with Jesus wanting to be led to where the body of Lazarus had been laid. This brings us to our study this morning, beginning in verse 38, where we consider the resurrection of Lazarus and the responses that this created within the Jewish communities of Bethlehem and, or Bethany, I'm sorry, I'm already getting into Christmas mode, I guess, to Bethany and Jerusalem. Those two communities had gathered together to mourn with the sisters. And one of the things that must be considered, I believe, in this particular setting is that we're not talking about a people that had gathered around the tomb of Lazarus, gathered in the the home of Mary and Martha to mourn his death. We are not talking about a people that is opposed to God. We're not talking about a people that rejects miracles, the divine miracles of God. This is a Jewish community, remember, that very much believed in the God of the Old Testament scriptures, and therefore they believed in the miracles of God. They held to those Old Testament scriptures that saw the amazing works of God, and they believed. It might be quite different in understanding the responses of this community if this was a community that rejected God altogether and therefore rejected the miracles of God, even in our modern times, we clearly see the rejection of God goes hand in hand with the rejection of the miraculous. Men and women claim to want proof and scientific evidence for the validation of miracles and the existence of God, but this Jewish community had a strong belief in God. They held fast to the Old Testament scriptures, which held that historic record of the miracles of God. 
And that is what makes the miracles of Jesus so puzzling to us as believers. Jesus gave abundant proof of his divine power and authority to a people that already believed in the miraculous power of God. The Jews of Christ's day strongly believed in the testimony of God's work as recorded in the Old Testament Bible. And yet, when they witnessed the power of God's Son, there's division, there's confusion, there's hostility, and even worse, as we approach the end of John chapter 11, there's the plotting of the Jews to get rid of this man, Jesus. To have him murdered. And this will late lead us all the way up to the cross of Calvary. Our study this morning will include the dramatic evidence of the divine nature of Jesus Christ, as well as some of the implications of that. The words of Christ are in focus here in our text before us. The words of Christ in prayer of faith to his Father, The words of proclamation that he declares to Lazarus to rise up and live. And we see then also the division that occurs at the end of our study this morning. The parting of ways between those that believed and those that chose not to believe. We begin with the miracle itself this morning in verses 38 and down through verse 44 as Jesus is led to the grave of Lazarus. Now John repeats that Jesus was experiencing that agitated or troubled spirit deep within him. He was feeling the empathy and the pain and the sorrow of this scene. And no doubt along with that, Jesus is feeling the rejection of some. We see that Martha is there, present in verse 39. We can add to that that the mourners and Mary herself were there, gathered around the tomb of Lazarus, but we don't want to forget about the disciples who Jesus said earlier in the chapter would witness his glory and they would believe that he is the resurrection and the life. We see that in verse 15. These are ones that are gathered around. On arriving at the tomb, Jesus asked that the stone be removed from the opening of the cave that was the tomb of Lazarus. Martha is naturally concerned because she knows that the body after four days of being dead is decomposing at this point, and there would be a strong odor for the the mourners to contend with. And we should not presume that Martha is wrong in that. Remember, this man was literally dead and in the tomb for four days. And we have no reason to believe that Jesus somehow sealed that body from decomposing until he could get to it. This body was dead. And the emphasis of the text before us is that he had been dead for four days and therefore decomposition had already started. I have no reason to believe that when they rolled that stone away, there was an odor that came out of that tomb. And that would have been evidence to all that were there, this man is very, very dead. And he's in the process of rotting away. This is going to add to the drama of Jesus calling this man back to life. Jesus is not concerned, you will notice, with the odor. And he reminded Martha in verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, we haven't read those exact words in the previous part of chapter 11, have we? 
This is not the exact wording that John recorded back in this previous conversation between Martha and Jesus. It is possible that Martha heard those words in verse 40 from Jesus and John simply did not record it in the previous conversation. Or it is possible that the messenger back at the beginning of the chapter that was sent by the sisters at the beginning of the story delivered to the sisters the response of Jesus who in verse 4 said, This sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Very likely, the messenger was still present with Jesus when Jesus spoke those words and he would have brought that word back to Mary and Martha. For Jesus to now remind Martha of his previous words would then support the promise to do for Lazarus what Jesus said he would do. When he spoke to Martha these words, your brother will rise again. The glory of God would be made visible to her as her brother brother walked out of the grave. And this would have reinforced to Martha what Jesus said in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? This is all going to come rushing to her here at the graveside of her brother Lazarus. Now, within this miracle, I would like to focus, number one, on the prayer of the Lord. And I'm emphasizing the words or the voice of Christ here. And number two, we're going to focus then on the power of his proclamation. Again, his voice is in view. And that's going to result in this division or parting of ways that takes place. So we begin with the prayer of Christ as he lifts his eyes up to the Father in heaven. And he says these words, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. This is a prayer, observe here, that is openly stated for the benefit of those that are standing around this graveside. The mourners, Martha, Mary, the disciples, this crowd that is gathered around, Jesus now opens his mouth, lifts his eyes to heaven, and speaks these words for their benefit. And in particular, we observe that Jesus has in mind those who are standing not nearby who will believe that God sent Jesus. And this includes Mary, Martha, and the disciples, but it also appears to include some who had come to mourn with the family, who, as we later will see in verse 45, also believed. In this prayer, Jesus presents himself as a model of faith for those who had come to believe in him. Jesus had absolute confidence in God the Father, and he will do exactly what God declared he would do. He knew, Jesus knew that God, whatever he determined to do, would do. Now, we don't want to draw from this prayer that we can presume that God will heal every disease, sickness, and deadly condition of men simply because we pray a prayer of faith as Jesus is doing here. But it does teach us that what God says he will do, he will do. This prayer also teaches us 
the unity that is between Father and Son. And friends, this is what gives you and I confidence as believers that pray to the Father through the Son. Jesus knew from his Father in the beginning that Lazarus was to be raised to life. It is why earlier in the chapter he prophesied of it. This was from the perfect counsel that existed between the Father and Son within the Godhead. It is why Jesus could confidently say that he and the Father would be glorified in this sickness that would not in the end result in death. Jesus is not teaching us a faith that will get us everything we ask for, but he is modeling a faith in the trustworthiness of God, that God can do what men cannot do, that God will do what he promises, and that God will be glorified in the end in all that he does. One author identified three lessons for the believer in this prayer of Jesus. And it's going to be helpful for us this morning to consider those three points. And I want to develop those three points that are given by this particular author. Number one, Jesus looking up to God for help. Number two, that he expresses bold confidence in God. And number three, he prays openly here as a witness for God. So let's just consider those three points this morning. Number one, Jesus models this kind of faith in his prayer as he first looks to heaven. His eyes are lifted up to God the Father. And this is significant for us to see because we know that Jesus is the Son of God, but he does nothing of his own initiative. He proclaims the things that his Father taught him to say. If you go back with me to chapter 8, just for a moment. Look at verse 28 and 29. Again, these are the words of Christ. John chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things That are pleasing to him. This is the faith. This is the unity within the Godhead. That Jesus is now teaching his people. Within the triune Godhead. Father, Son worked in perfect harmony and unity. And this teaches us to always look to God. When we face the troubling things of this life. Whether our circumstances seem insignificant. Or they're monumental. We lift our eyes in prayer to God, knowing that he is more than capable of bringing us help. And he has all the wisdom to bring us the help that is needed for our good and for his glory. Not necessarily what we want from God, but he has the wisdom to give us what we need from him. Second, Jesus also teaches us that God is always attentive to our needs. Notice that Jesus has absolute confidence that his prayer will be heard. This idea of hearing does not simply refer to the reception of sounds into the ears of God. What Jesus means when he says, I know you always hear me, he is saying that God the Father always hears with the intention of providing what is needed. Recall going back to our study in Philippians some time ago. 
Why could Paul say in chapter 4 of Philippians and verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? It is because of what he teaches the Philippian believers in the 19th verse of the same chapter. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What Paul does not mean is that whatever he wanted, God would do for him. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, my God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory, including the riches of his wisdom, his discernment, his power. He's not limited in any way, except by his own goodness, his own righteousness, his own wisdom. Remember that in the previous verse, before Paul made those comments, this is what Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. You see, Paul was not advancing that whatever we want, God is going to give us. He is submitting himself to the wisdom and the power of God to give us what God says we need, what God declares we need. The faith that Jesus teaches us in this prayer is not that we get everything we ask for, rather that God will give to us what he knows we actually need. Whether that is being hungry or being filled, whether that is being alive or dead in the tomb like Lazarus. And God will provide out of his riches the glory that is to be found in Jesus Christ, his son. When we pray, we pray to the Father through his Son. And we are confident that our Savior hears every word in our plea. And we are to be just as confident that the Father hears every word of his Son. Jesus expected his gratitude to God because he knew that the Father would always hear. So he expresses this gratitude, this thanksgiving to God. And if the son asks for it, God will grant it because the son knows what each of us need. Do you see what Jesus is teaching us in this prayer? And then he's about to enact one of the greatest miracles that he's done on earth, apart from his own resurrection. And third, we learn from Jesus that his faith in God the Father would be a witness to others that they might also believe. That's why he's praying out in the open like this audibly. I think this is a good encouragement for us to let our faith in Christ be a very public thing. That is not to say that we violate the instruction of Jesus from Matthew 6 by putting ourselves on display. Remember where Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we're not to draw attention to ourselves when we give to the poor. We're not to draw attention to ourselves when we pray out in front of other people. The objective of our Christian living should be that we draw attention to the Lord God, that he would be glorified through our practice of faith. Remember, it is the same Jesus that told us to go in our closets and pray that is now praying before men here in John chapter 11. 
And therefore, according to scriptures, there is a big difference between practicing our faith in such a way that we secure attention for ourselves and practicing our faith for the glory of Christ as a witness for him before the world. I have seen or heard too many Christians go to Matthew chapter 6 and suggest we should only pray secretly to ourselves or with ourselves to the Father in our closets. What do you do with Jesus here in John chapter 11 or John 17? Our lives should be a living invitation for those around us to believe in our Savior. Through this prayer by the Lord, he teaches us like he taught those around him How we are to bring glory to God, even in a time of sorrow, a time of grief, a time of death. We give witness to God's faithfulness and his graciousness as we bow before him and we seek his help with full confidence in his power and in his wisdom to provide for us what we need. This is not about putting ourselves on display. This is about putting the glory of Christ on display. And this prayer by the Lord was openly expressed so that some within this crowd would believe in who he was. They would see his glory. And as Jesus said back in verse 15, that would include his disciples. It included Mary and Martha. But as verse 45 also shows, there were others in that crowd that witnessed the glory of God in Christ, and they also would believe. Just as Jesus modeled his faith in God to those bystanders, so it strengthens our faith, the faith of the church today. We can confidently turn to God in prayer for our needs, our cares, knowing that his son always hears us and the father always, always hears his son. Our prayer life, our faith in Christ, should always point others to him with his glory and his purposes in mind. Our belief in Jesus Christ is to make him known to the world. And this prayer gives assurance and comfort to all true believers. It teaches us that by faith we can confidently come to the throne of God's grace and know that our our Savior mediates for us there. And he brings to us the help that we need. J.C. Ryle correctly commented, on this prayer by saying, and I've included this on the back of your note sheet, let it be a settled principle of our religion that the Savior in whom we trust is nothing less than eternal God, one whom the Father hears always, one who in very deed is God's fellow. A clear view of the dignity of our mediator's person is one secret of inward comfort. A clear view of the dignity of our mediator's person is one secret of inward comfort. And he brings that comfort to the tomb of Lazarus here in John 11. Second point of focus this morning, not only the words of the prayer of Christ, but the power of his words to proclaim life to Lazarus. We read that when Jesus had finished praying, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. John emphasizes here that Lazarus was truly dead in verse 44. It is a dead man that walked out of that tomb. And that's what John emphasizes. 
And we can almost picture what John has painted for us here as John or Lazarus kind of stumbles out all bound up in burial claws. To us, he would look like the mummies on those horror films. No doubt Lazarus would struggle to walk. He probably was having difficulty seeing because he's all wrapped up, but he did stumble out. Because when Jesus called him, he came. Jesus then orders the people standing by to unwrap him and let him go. And this would have been a very striking scene for those who came here to mourn. The atmosphere had gone from deep sorrow and grief to now shock and perhaps even fear at what they had witnessed. One detail that we do not read from John is how Lazarus responded to all this. Think about it from his point of view just for a moment. Four days earlier, where had he been ushered to? Paradise. The presence of the glory of God himself. Remember back in Luke when Jesus described another Lazarus that died and he went into the bosom of Abraham. A reference to the beauty of God's eternal afterlife. And I don't know who brought this message to Lazarus, perhaps one of the angels of God. But he came four days later to Lazarus and said, I know you're enjoying it here, but we're going to have to send you back. Back to what? A world of sickness, sin, death, sorrow. And Lazarus was going to have to die a second time. That's the reality for him. Now, I don't suggest in any of this that Lazarus, Lazarus grumbled about this. He was obedient to the call of Christ. But I don't think he came out of the tomb high-fiving everybody and saying, wow, I snuck by a close one there, didn't I? This is a man that had tasted the glory of what is to come. And he had to step back into our world. What I think is equally fascinating is how Jesus accomplished this amazing miracle because another detail we don't find in this story is that he ever touched Lazarus. This is a rather amazing miracle. And I think of Elisha in the Old Testament with the Shunammite son. He had to go lay on the dead corpse until it started warming up and coming back to life. Jesus deliberately stands on the outside of the tomb and calls with his voice, Lazarus, come out of there. He doesn't even unwrap Lazarus. He tells other people to do it so that there can be no mistake how this miracle occurred. It occurred by the power of the voice of God himself because he is the resurrection and the life. And what this harkens us back to, I believe, is the book of Genesis, where God said, let there be light, and light came. Jesus said, Lazarus, rise up, and Lazarus lived. From a human perspective, the raising of life of a man that had been four days dead, we would say, is entirely impossible. Can't be done. But if somehow 
again from a human's perspective, if we could reduce the profound nature of the impossible to something that was, say, just very difficult, we would be looking at all the mechanics of how we could get this difficult thing done. We'd be consulting with the best medical manuals. We'd be looking at the best surgical room, calling in the best surgeons. We'd be getting the paddles out to be sure and trying to shock that heart back to life again. This would be a very hands-on operation if we were to even try such a monumental undertaking. But Jesus just speaks with his words, the command to Lazarus, And he does so, notice again, with a loud voice. Those around he wanted to hear. The loud cry of Christ was not for Lazarus because he was having trouble hearing. Jesus wanted to be heard by those whom he wanted to hear him pray. He now wanted them to hear him speak life into this man. And this loud cry made clear to all who were witnessing this resurrection that it is by the word of Jesus that a dead man walked out of this tomb. He is declaring very loudly, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus doesn't lay a hand on him. He applies no medicine. There's no syringe. There's no surgical instruments. And again, he doesn't even unwrap Lazarus. He calls this dead man out, and he does so by name, notice. Lazarus comes out. Scholars have pointed out that if Jesus had not used the name Lazarus, what would have happened? All of the corpses would have risen. So he focuses on one man. That's the power of the words of Christ. And the point here, and the point that I believe Jesus intended to make known, is that by the power of his word, life was restored out of death. When Jesus cried out, Lazarus sat up, He obeyed the voice of the creator and he walked out of the tomb. And this is why I believe that Psalm 29 was such an appropriate beginning to our worship service this morning. We are to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, the glory that is due his name. We're to worship him in holy array. Why? Because he is God and his voice is powerful. It is majestic. His voice is the proclamation of his glory that thunders forth. His voice breaks, it shatters. It hews out flames of fire and shakes the wilderness. His voice orders his creation. And in his temple, everything says what? Glory. Don't you find it fascinating that in the previous chapter, Jesus repeatedly said, my sheep hear what? My voice. And they will follow me. Jesus spoke of other sheep that are going to come from another sheepfold other than from Israel's fold. And he said, they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Is there any doubt in your mind that when Jesus called us, we would come? Or we'd stop and we'd think about it? What Jesus means is that when his elect hear his voice, they will respond in faith. They will believe and they will follow him. They will rise from spiritual death and they will be made alive in Christ. 
Is there any doubt in your mind that when Christ called you, you wouldn't respond? When calling Lazarus out of the tomb, Jesus was not only showing he had the power to give life to those that were dead, he was also showing that he had the authority to call out from death any that he chooses to call. The power of his word to call Lazarus from the grave is the same power in his word to call any sinner from spiritual death. And we know this because he is the resurrection and the life. To those who believe, they will live. How is it then we believe? Well, we go back to John chapter 3. And what do we read there? It is the spirit of Jesus Christ that causes us to be born again. In John chapter 6, It is the Father that says, no one comes to my Son unless I draw that one. Unless I call that one. Lazarus is a picture of the call of every true believer that by the word of Jesus Christ, his people are made alive. They rise up out of death. And we are made to be alive with him with Christ, Ephesians 2. I think few New Testament writers understood the power of Jesus to call sinners out of death and into life more than did the Apostle Paul. And I say that because the word call or called was used more times by Paul than perhaps any other New Testament writer. And for good reason. Picture Saul on the road or the highway to Damascus, heading to murder Christians, to throw them in jail, to do away with the name of Jesus Christ because he despised Jesus. And the glory of heaven poured out onto that highway. And Saul fell to the ground as a dead man. And Paul himself recounts that moment in Acts 22 when the light of heaven blinded him. And he fell to the ground. And he's giving this testimony to the council there in Jerusalem. And Paul said, the voice of Jesus then sounded forth out of that blinding light, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you remember what Saul said, or Paul answered. Who are you, Lord? And the response from heaven, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Both Paul and his traveling companions heard the voice of Jesus, but only Paul understood. Only Paul could say to Jesus, what shall I do, Lord? And Jesus told Paul, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. Jesus wasn't there in heaven waiting for a response. He wasn't extending an invitation and waiting for Saul to raise his hand or repeat a prayer after him. Jesus said to the one he called, you're going to go into Damascus and it will be told to you all that I have appointed for you to do. And we're not talking about a slavish response by Paul. With great joy and peace and comfort. He arose and he obeyed the voice of the Savior. Because this is a man that has been made alive in Christ. 
Just look at Romans chapter 1, a couple of examples by the Apostle Paul in how he identifies himself as a man that heard the voice of the Savior call him to life. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul says, I am Paul to the church in Rome, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. That's how he saw himself. I'm a called one, set apart for the gospel of God, he wrote. Verse 6, Romans chapter 1, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. To the church in Corinth, he also wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, I am Paul writing to you, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by what? Calling. And then Paul continues in verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This continued to be how Paul wrote of himself to the churches and the believers. He attributed his salvation and theirs to the voice of Christ, who along with the Father calls all believers out of death and the darkness of sin into spiritual resurrection of life, just as Jesus had done at the tomb of Lazarus. And Paul is not alone. And understanding that he was called by Jesus into resurrection life. All of the other New Testament authors recognized it as well. As well as the author of Hebrews. James. As well as Peter, Jude, and the Apostle John. All wrote of believers in the same way. They're the called ones. That's what we are this morning if we're a believer in Christ. We're the called ones of Christ. It's the power of the voice of the Savior that called us out of death and caused us to be raised up to new life in Him. What I hope is evident to all of us is that we are saved today because of the authority of the Savior's voice in calling us to Himself, calling us out of spiritual death and into resurrection life. It is because of the power of His voice that we can have assurance that no one can take us away from Christ. Because nobody is stronger than he is. And if he can exercise such saving power to bring us out of death and into life, we know at the end of the age, he's going to do the same thing for our body that lies in the grave. And if this is true of Jesus Christ, he has but to speak the word of his power to bring good into our lives out of hardship and out of trials. He has only to speak from his throne to direct the nations, to determine elections, and to deal with viruses according to his eternal purposes. His truth spoken through the writers of Scripture, his word spoken in the word is authoritative and it's sufficient. It's enough. And all the promises of Jesus Christ, we can be assured, will be fulfilled with one word from him. It is the same Jesus who called Lazarus from the tomb that himself would walk out of his own grave in glory and power. It is this Jesus that raises up from spiritual death all of those that believe in him. 
And this brings us to kind of a sad ending, at least in part. It is this miracle, it is the voice of his power that divided this crowd. Verse 45 and verse 46, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Jesus and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. These two verses leave us with both a vision of God's glory and a view of the darkness of man's unbelief. We've already considered Martha and Mary, the disciples, to be believers, having witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, at least 11 of the disciples. And certainly Lazarus was a believer himself. But there were also many Jews who had come to mourn with the sisters that now have seen Jesus call a dead man out of the grave and they believe in him. To say that they believe in him is not to suggest that they fully understood the gospel of Christ or his atoning sacrifice on a cross. Because even the faith of the disciples did not come to full maturity until after the Lord's resurrection. But nonetheless, these believers affirmed by faith the truth that they did know about Christ. They had just witnessed the glory of his divine nature in raising a dead man. They then believed that the glory of God was manifested in his son as the son of God. And this is according to the prophecy of Jesus Christ himself back in verse 4. This sickness, he said, would not end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. These believers saw at least that much. The glory of God is now in the son of God. And as more truth about Jesus would be revealed to these believers, they would continue to believe as they would witness the fuller glory of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now we've also seen from John's gospel, there are those that claim to believe, but who were not true believers. However, the context of this passage suggests that those who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus truly believed because of the glory that they had just witnessed. And again, I hold to what Jesus said in verse 4. In verse 48, in addition, the religious rulers seemed to regard these ones, these believers, as true followers of Christ. And according to the prophecy of Caiaphas in verse 52, it indicates that these believers were gathered together as what? Children of God. Furthermore, in verse 45 and 46, there is a significant contrast between these believers who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus with those who had also witnessed his resurrection, but who then ran to the Pharisees to report to them what Jesus had done. And as amazing as this is for us to read, after witnessing that same display of God's glory, There is an unholy parting of ways that was taking place here among the Jews. And again, this would lead all the way to Calvary. There can be no mistaking of the heart motive of those who defected and refused to believe. They went to the Jewish rulers to fan the flames of hatred that they knew existed in those Pharisees and chief priests. Imagine being one of those witnesses and running to the Jewish authorities to report the matter to the very people that were seeking to kill Jesus, as we read in verse, or chapter 10. 
We're going to look more at those hostile reactions in our next study of John 11. But we cannot help but be amazed at such a division of belief and unbelief by a group of people that both had witnessed Jesus raise a dead man by the power of his word alone. And yet, in part, this is so what grieved the heart of the Savior that he wept for a people so resistant to be rescued by his resurrection power. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, not just for those who he came to save, but for those also out of the darkness of their sin would refuse his love. This is the testimony of our world then as it is today. Many will believe the truth they witness in Christ. Many will believe the testimony that we give of his power. But many more will part ways with the truth of Christ, even to be his hostile enemies and the hostile enemies of the church. Our closing thoughts this morning will be to consider certain truths of faith that I think we are to be reminded of here. Number one, faith will witness God's glory from suffering. Faith will witness God's glory from suffering. Is this not the testimony of the New Testament? It's why Peter wrote his epistles, glory from suffering. Consider what Jesus said to Martha, who could only imagine a brother whose sickness caused death that can't be reversed. Jesus had told her her faith in him would see the glory of God in the end. What words these are for you and I to learn this morning. I'm right now in my morning devotions reading through Job. Glory through suffering. We have the promise of Christ from his word that God will work all things together for good and we tend to believe those words so long as things go well for us. But our faith can falter when the darkness of trouble and adversity come our way. If we could put that quote from J.C. Ryle up on the board, I don't know if you guys are able to do that. But listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Let us lay to heart what our Lord says in this place. Let us pray for such stores of inward faith that when our turn comes to suffer, we may suffer patiently and believe all is well. Friends, think about that. When we suffer, to suffer patiently, waiting on the glory of Christ to fulfill his word as he promised and thereby to believe all is well. Have you felt that in the midst of suffering? Could you say with Ryle, all is well with me? That's one of the hymns we sing, is it not? It is well with my soul, a hymn writ, written in the midst of suffering and anguish. Faith will witness God's glory from suffering. Second, faith in God's Son will bring comfort and peace. Faith in God's Son will bring comfort and peace to His people. The voice of our Savior is not only powerful to raise the dead, it is certain, absolutely certain, to be heard by the Father in heaven. It is the word of Jesus that not only called us to eternal life in Christ, but it is his word that mediates on our behalf before God the Father. 
prayer heard by God's Son, our prayers heard by God's Son, will most certainly be heard by His Father. And if Jesus mediates for us with the same authority that He used to raise to eternal life, what life of faith should this produce within us, if not one of comfort and peace? This is not a comfort and peace with the world around us. It was not so for Jesus, and it won't be for us either. The comfort of the Christian is a life that is held by the one who holds all power in the command of his voice. Everything is at his disposal. The Savior who calls us to eternal life by faith also mediates for us to the Father. And friends, that kind of faith should bring us comfort and peace. Jesus has us in his hands. And third, faith testifying for Christ will cause troubling divisions. Faith testifying for Christ will cause troubling divisions. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And these will be our closing thoughts this morning. If this reality was true when Jesus raised a man from the dead by the power of his word, that it caused troubling divisions, how much more will it be true for you and I as we speak the name of Christ in this world? But if we want to talk about comfort and peace, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul who talks about this unholy division as we live and proclaim the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always, always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. This is reminding the Christian that as we live our faith before the world, as we speak of our faith, to the unbelieving world around us. We are a sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. We are a fragrance of God's Son to God Himself. And as we live and as we speak Christ, though God is very pleased with that aroma, Paul says to some, it's the aroma of death from death, or from death to death. Some are going to reject. They will despise. They will hate. But to others, this will be a fragrance from life that gives life because we're speaking the message of life. We're proclaiming the glory of the Christ who is the resurrection and the life. We're not peddling the word of God, but out of sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The joy that we have as witnesses for Christ is that we are the fragrance of Christ to God himself when we're faithful to live and preach for his glory. But the difficult part is this parting of ways between those who receive our witness and those that reject it. To those who disbelieve, we give off the aroma of death, and we're going to be seen as despised by men. 
But to others who believe, our witness will point them to life in Christ, who raises them up spiritually and one day is going to raise their body as well. Because that's the promise of the word of our Savior that brings life. Father in heaven, as your people, all we can do is rejoice that we belong to you through Christ, your Son. And we respond in saying glory, glory to our God, glory to our Savior, glory to the Spirit that indwells us. And I pray, Father, that we will continue and be encouraged by this aroma that we are to be in giving the fragrance of your Son to the world around us, knowing it pleases you first and foremost. And some will receive life because of it. Let us then be a faithful witness and testimony for your Son, Jesus Christ, in it's his name that we pray this together. Amen ourselves in song in just a moment. Again, I just